doing that this week. We are in the book of Exodus, continuing a little bit farther in the book of Exodus. It's page 45 if you're using a pew Bible this morning, Exodus chapter 1. We've been in Exodus a couple of weeks here. I've, I've kind of walked through a little bit about why I, why I want to walk through Exodus and how I think that God will help us to see him better and his glory and how really Exodus helps us to see Jesus better. And there's going to be so many times where we want to just run right to the picture of Jesus because over and over we're going to see it here in the book of Exodus. Jesus is everywhere in this Old Testament book. But last week, as we walked through it, I, I said the only way for us to really see and understand the story of Exodus is to see and understand the story of Genesis. And so last week, uh, we walked through Genesis because the Pentateuch, this, the, these first five books of the Bible that Moses has written, these books of the law, I said last week, they're one continued story. They start at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 is where the story of Exodus starts. It's there where God creates Adam and Eve, and he, and he says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he gives them that command right away at the very beginning, in the very first chapter of the Bible. And then as we walked through it last week, you saw, you saw how sin entered into the picture in Genesis chapter 3, and everything changes from that point on. We no longer are, are working to be fruitful, multiply, and fulfill the earth because of the command that God gave us, but instead, sin has tainted us and tainted our hearts, and, and now we, we work for ourselves, and we want our own ways, and we are selfish sinners. And even by chapter 6 in Genesis, the story of Noah, God already is so frustrated with his people that he brings judgment on mankind and brings us all back to one family in Noah's family. The task of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth does not look very hopeful at that stage. Even after Noah, men continue to, to do things for their own glory, to, to build and to work and to, and to be selfish. They, they want their own way even after Noah. Right, right in, in chapter 11 of Genesis, they, they try to build a tower and God confuses their language and disperses them farther around the earth. And then in Genesis 12, God's story changes. God makes a covenant with Abram. He makes a covenant with Abram to bless his family, to bless him, to bless his family, so that they might be a blessing to all peoples, that his blessing to them will flow through and become a blessing to others. That blessing, though, as you walk through Genesis, that blessing is really slow to come to fruition. In fact, it's really late in life that Abram finally has a, a son. He has his son with, with Sarah. His son is Isaac. And even Isaac, even though the covenant is reaffirmed with Isaac, he, and he has two sons, Jacob and Esau, the promise is still really slow to come. The promise that, that there would be Descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens seems to be really slow in coming. Jacob, Jacob has more sons, 12 sons, but those sons fight and squabble and strife and they sell off one of the sons into slavery, into Egypt. And 
that son, even that atrocity that they commit against Joseph, that ends up bringing an opportunity, bringing salvation, really, to Jacob's family. Joseph, as you know the story of Genesis or have read it maybe even this last week, you know that Joseph finally comes to a place where he's in charge of the, of the storehouse of food and goods and, and Jacob's family is going to starve to death and so they come to Joseph in Egypt not knowing that it's Joseph. They come to Egypt looking for rescue, looking for help, looking for salvation. And they find it in their brother, Joseph, whom they had sold off previously. And it's under the care of Joseph that the entire family moves into Egypt. That's how the book of Genesis ends. It moves into Egypt. And, and as Moses writes Exodus, in chapter 1, those very first verses, he mirrors the story back in Genesis so that you know this is one continued story. That this promise that happened back in Genesis is coming true. It's going to come true here in, or, or continue to come true at least in the story of Exodus. It's one continued story. And we come to Exodus chapter 1, and we read that same passage. And the name, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And then we read uh, in, verse, in verse 4, then, or sorry, in verse 6, then Jesus died and all of his, all, then Joseph died, all of his brothers in that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Finally, this promise that God has given to us, this command that God gave to us all the way in Genesis chapter 1, finally, this blessing is coming true. This promise that God has made is coming true. Everything is starting to smell really good. It's starting to look really good. And then you get verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Great storytellers know that you have to continue to use the cycle of conflict and resolution. Conflict and resolution. That's how good stories are made. And Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, the author here of Exodus, he is a good storyteller. He's going to give us all kinds of cycles of conflict and resolution, conflict and resolution, over and over and over. Even right here in chapter 1, we're going to see it several times. Moses is an excellent storyteller. All of Exodus is going to be a series of conflicts and resolution. Really, all of the Bible is a story of conflict and resolution. Conflict and resolution until you get to the very end and you see that there is an ultimate resolution with no more conflict at the very end. Moses is a good storyteller and everyone knows it. Hollywood knows it. The story of Exodus has been told for every generation in lots of different ways. Hollywood has tried to tell this story. You know, probably, depending on what generation you're in, you know one of the stories. You know about Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments that he shared many, many years ago. You have gray hair if you remember that one. You're probably much younger, though, if you remember DreamWorks' cartoon, Prince of Egypt. Or even maybe younger, Ridley Scott had a movie not too long ago, Exodus, the Gods and Kings, a giant thriller, I think, that no one saw. Hollywood knows that 
Genesis, Exodus, these stories are, are epic sagas. And they know, they know that the theme of Scripture, this cycle of conflict and resolution, conflict and resolution, they know that in Scripture it's God who is working all things together for good. They might not say it that way. They might not even understand it that way, but they know that Scripture, the theme of Scripture is that God works things together for good. That's the way Genesis ended. So flip, flip back. In your Exodus chapter 1, flip back to Genesis chapter 50 because we didn't talk about this last week, but it is important to know as we look forward into Exodus. In Genesis chapter 50, Jacob has passed away. And now it's just Joseph and his brothers. And, and if you remember, Joseph was sold off. His brothers sold him off into slavery. He was, he was imprisoned. He, was, he, was, he had a horrible life until he was put into charge and command in Egypt. And the father has passed away. Jacob has passed away. And his brothers are nervous. His brothers are nervous. And now that dad is gone, Joseph is going to have some kind of retribu- retribution against his brothers for what they had done to him earlier in their life. But in Genesis chapter 50, these great words, you know them. These aren't any secret to you. If you know the story of Joseph, you know these, these words. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph is talking to his brothers. And he says this. He says, as for you, to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the theme of Scripture Joseph said, what you meant for evil, you sold me off, you, you didn't have any idea that anything was going to come of it. You meant it for evil, but God uses it for good to bring about many people that they should be kept alive. Joseph is saying that God, God resolves great conflicts. God is the one, even when it looks horrible, God means it for good. That's the story of Exodus. Let's read Exodus chapter 1 together and walk through it a little bit. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Nephali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died, and all of his brothers in that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land." Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But they were more, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. 
but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is a Hebrew, shall ca- you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It's right at the beginning of this passage. The promise is coming true. They're fruitful. They're multiplying. They're increasing greatly. Everything that God had promised has come true. But then the music hits. Dun, 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 dun. There's a king who doesn't know Joseph. We don't know exactly. We don't know exactly who this Pharaoh is. His name is not listed there, which is an interesting thing here in chapter 1. Pharaoh's name is not listed. We do see two names of lowly midwives, but Pharaoh's name is never listed. We do not know for fact who he is. He may be one of the Ramses. There's a city that gets named after him here in chapter 1, and so possibly that's who it was, but we don't know. It's never named. And it reminds us, even that fact reminds us that God continues to use the weak and the small, the forgotten, to shame the proud. Shapporah, Pua, those names we see, those names are written down, those names we know, but Pharaoh, we don't know. But Pharaoh becomes, in the story of Exodus, Pharaoh becomes the primary foe, the primary foil for this conflict to happen. For us to see this cycle of conflict and resolution, conflict and resolution, Pharaoh becomes the one. And it's not Pharaoh versus the Israelites or Pharaoh versus the Hebrews. It's not even Pharaoh versus Moses, who we'll see in starting in chapter 2. It's not even Pharaoh versus Moses. It's not even Pharaoh versus the plagues or versus the things that come against Exodus. It's, it, as we learn in Exodus, it's Pharaoh versus God. That's the story of Exodus, Pharaoh versus God. And maybe even more than that, it's the seed of the serpent, back to Genesis chapter 3. It's the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. That's the story we saw early on in Genesis chapter 3. And I don't think it's any coincidence that when you see pictures and sculptures of Pharaoh as they've been dug up by archaeologists and we have these statues, that when you see a picture of Pharaoh, you see his headdress has a snake front and center. This story is Pharaoh versus God, but this story is the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. That really is the true blessing that God had promised to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He was going to bless Abram and his family so that he might be a blessing, so that there might be a way for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be saved. Pharaoh is the new king. And Pharaoh does not want the Hebrews to grow and to multiply as they have been. So Pharaoh deals shrewdly. 
it says in chapter 1 with the Israelites. He does not want them to multiply. He does not want them to join any enemy that might come against them. He doesn't want them to escape the land, he says, except that's exactly what happens. Especially as you know the rest of the story of of Exodus, you'll know that the Israelites, they do multiply. In fact, Moses tells us here that the more they are oppressed, the more that they multiply. They do multiply and they do, they do become their own people. They do join, they do join the enemy of Pharaoh. They join God, they become, they become the people that God has called them to be. The oppression that Pharaoh puts them under is actually what forces the Israelites, what forces the Hebrews to retain their own identity. You know, if, again, if you, if you know the rest of the story, you know over and over as the Israelites wander in the desert, there is a whole number of times where they say, I wish we could go back to Egypt. I want to go back to Egypt. Life was better when we were back in Egypt. Think of all the things we had. Back. These people wanted to be Egyptians. They did not want to be their own people. And yet the oppression that Pharaoh puts on them forces them to retain their identity, to become their own people. They do multiply. They do become their own people, God's people, and they do ultimately escape from Egypt. Everything everything that Pharaoh feared, everything that Pharaoh was worried about is realized here in Exodus. He deals shrewdly with them. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And so, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Pharaoh uses the Israelites to build things for his glory, to build cities for his own purpose. In fact, this is a direct, again, these, these phrases mirror each other. From Genesis to, to Exodus, this, this come, let us deal shrewdly with them, that, that reminds us, if you remember Numbers chapter 11, or sorry, uh, Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, the people come together and they say, come, let us build a tower. Let us do something for our own glory. Let us show that we are gods, they say in Genesis 11. That's what's happening here. Pharaoh says, come, let me show these people that I am their ruler and they will build for me and for my glory. Look at verses 13 and 14. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, it says, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Do you see the repeat there? of the same word, work. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service and all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It's almost as if you can hear the crack of the whip every time he reminds us of that word. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work. Crack. Made their lives bitter. Crack. All kinds of work. And all their work, crack. He ruthlessly made them work, crack, as slaves. The lash of the whip over and over and over. But God has a different plan for the Israelites. 
flip over a page to Exodus chapter four. I want you to see this. In Exodus chapter four, we'll get to it in a few weeks, but in Exodus chapter four, Moses has already met with God. God has given him a plan to come back and to visit Pharaoh and to, and to be his spokesman to Pharaoh. And in chapter four of Exodus, verses 21 to 23, this is what, this is what Moses is hearing from God, what he is to do. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put into your power, but I will harden his heart and he will not let the people go. Verse 22, then he shall, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That word serve there is the exact same Hebrew word as work back in chapter one. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. In chapter one, it's work, work, work. In chapter four, it's serve. Because we have a God who turns oppression into service. We have a God who turns work into worship. We have a God who turns burden into beauty. We have a God who turns pain into praise. We have a God who turns the cracks of the whip into the notes of his glory. We have a God who has a different plan. And our God turns hardships into worship. Pharaoh thinks they're building for him, but God is going to use it for his own glory. And Pharaoh realizes that work is not going to do enough. He can't work them into submission, and so instead, he's going to kill them into submission. He gives instructions to, to Shapur and, and Pua. They're probably the leaders, at least, of all of the midwives. He calls them in, and he says, I want you to kill all of the boy, all of the boy Hebrews when they're born. I want you to kill them. And, and they fear God, it says. Even, even in the midst of this trial, even in the midst of this oppression, even in the midst of this hardship, they fear God. And so instead of doing what Pharaoh has called, they let them live. And Pharaoh calls them in and says, why are you letting these boys live? And you see, you see exactly what they say. They say, because Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. For they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. And there's a whole lot to say in this. There's, there's some commentators that, that, that spend a lot of time talking about this, that, that these women, God is, God is praising these women because, because they lie to Pharaoh, and maybe they do. We, we don't know for sure. It could be a lie that is used for a higher purpose to save the life of these Hebrew boys. We, we know that, that that is true in Scripture. In fact, in Acts, we saw it where Peter and John were thrown in jail, if you remember, and and uh, he says, we have to obey God rather than you. There's, there's some laws that we will not comply with because we have to follow God. That could be what's happening here. It could be, it could be that the, these, these midwives, when, when they were given this instruction from Pharaoh, they just went to the, to the Hebrew women and said, don't call us. Don't call us right away. Call us later. Help us. We'll, we'll be there to help you in the after. But don't call us too early 
Let the babies be born before we get there. It could be that it's totally true. It could be too, this, I like this, this idea, it could be a combination of both. It could be that they are just being so sarcastic, so exaggerated in their response. In fact, giving a barb back at Pharaoh to say, our women are so much stronger than your women that they can do it before we even get there. I don't know if that's the case, whatever the case. God rewards these women. These women who are given instruction to kill, God rewards with families. God rewards with life. Pharaoh and Satan try to use the two tools against God people that we've seen all the way through history, slavery and death. Slavery and death. Pharaoh tries to oppress the people and tries to kill the people and Satan, the serpent, does the same. Tries to remind us that we're slaves to sin. That sin is gonna lead to death, but God. God has a different plan. God uses oppression of slavery to build and solidify his Israelite people. He defeats death. He directly defeats death here in chapter one with the promise and the gift of life to these midwife women. And he's done the same for us. Listen to Romans chapter six. Do you not know, Paul says, that if you present yourselves as anything, as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And then later he says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that, gets, that leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has given us victory over slavery and death. And he's accomplished it through Jesus Christ. The worship team is going to come and lead us this morning as we close. Practical reminder for us today. What can we take out of this message? What can we take out of this Exodus chapter one? I think there's two things I want you to remember as you walk out this morning. The first is that we have a God of purpose. We have a God of purpose, even in the midst of burden, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of mortar and brick. Even in the midst of work, we have a God of purpose. What man or Satan or Pharaoh means for evil, God turns and uses for good. And secondly, we have a God of life. Even in the midst of an order to kill, even in the midst of a command to commit murder against these Hebrew boys, even when everything points to certain death and absolute destruction, we have a God of life.
who gives life. First John tells us that whoever has the Son has life and we have hope because of a sovereign God who works all things together and through the sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope and life this morning. Please stand as we close today. to call him father 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.